0: You turn with your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew, Matthew chapter nine, and I'll start reading at verse nine. Matthew chapter nine and verse nine. The scripture says, And Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that would behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our message is he humbled himself. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for bringing us together on this, your holy Sabbath day. Lord, make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Father. And upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ so that Eric Walsh is not seen or heard. Instead, Father God, we seek to hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus had just healed a man with palsy and also had healed a leper. Before that, Jesus spent time calling fishermen to be disciples. Jesus was beginning to put together his team of disciples and as he began to do this, Jesus was looking for certain characteristics in individuals. One of the most unlikely people for Jesus to choose to call to be a disciple is not only at the center of this story in many ways, but is also the author of this gospel. Matthew was sitting at a toll booth. When Jesus walks by and Jesus does not give to Matthew some long dissertation trying to convince him as to why Matthew should be a disciple. He does not spend a long amount of time trying to convince him that that Jesus is the Messiah and that he should be followed. Instead, Jesus just utters two words, follow me. And Matthew, a publican, a tax collector, drops what he is doing in the middle of his workday and gets up, leaves all he has, and follows Jesus. Let me submit to you that this is an impressive story because the publicans go all the way back three or four centuries previous in the Roman Empire. Rome first used them uh, really as contractors to help build things and to oversee um, the levying of taxes. Of taxes. And what happened is that once uh, it got down into Israel, more of what really happened is that they simply became tax collectors. The way that the publican system worked is that the publicans would, would go to Rome and they would have to bid on contracts to collect taxes for certain provinces, similar to how we have a defense contract bids with the government in the United States. And they would want to win this bid, they would want to win the contract to collect taxes for the region, because what they would then do is pay Rome up front the taxes out of their pockets. And then they would retreat and go back to the province and collect the taxes. Obviously, the, the, the hope is that when you go back to the province to collect the taxes, you collect more than you gave Rome up front. So by definition of, the, uh, of ancient Hebrew Jewish law, much of which is recorded in the Old Testament, it was really unlawful for a Jew to do this because by doing so, a Jew was collecting interest on his brethren. Nehemiah spends great time in his book describing the sin of of usury that was being practiced in Israel. And here now, Matthew is one of those same types of people who collect taxes in order to make a very, very lucrative profit. I submit to you that this is why the publicans were so hated. It was twofold. On the one hand, the publicans were the direct agents of an evil empire. An empire that thought to stamp out true godliness around the world. The publicans had sold out completely to this evil empire and were now their primary force for collecting taxes and really subjugating the, the people who Rome had conquered. But the other problem was that they were also immoral in what they did in a very biblical sense because it was forbidden for them to collect the interest. Because of this... The publicans were viewed like we view drug dealers. They were viewed as the most vile and hated of all professions in Israel. One, because their nationalism was completely in question in that they would serve Rome in such a manner. And two, because their morals were in question because how could any upstanding Jew charge interest against his brother under the the finger of a colonial foreign power? Ah, but into Jesus. And the whole equation changes. Jesus sees Matthew, and and Jesus does not see him as a vile, uh, a sellout of the Jewish people. Instead, Jesus sees Matthew and realizes that there is potential in that disciple to serve him and to help establish his kingdom on earth. Let me tell you that some of us are Matthews. So far in our lives, we've been sitting at the toll booths collecting interest for the enemy. Many of us have lived our lives selling uh, the good name of God up the river, supposed to be Christians, supposed to be Seventh-day Adventists, but our lifestyles have represented something else. In fact, because we come to church to draw strength and to, and to be educated in the school systems and, and to have a better lifestyle, yet go out in the world and waste all that energy and talent. Like the publicans of their day, we are, we are charging interest to the good news of Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, but into Jesus. When Jesus comes across this publican, and has him to follow him, it is a complete shift. You see, the first few disciples that were called were fishermen. They weren't very educated. They weren't at all wealthy. And Matthew does something interesting. Of course, he's also called Matthew Levi, even Matthew the evangelist for his work after Jesus' ascension. But Matthew invites him to really the first great feast. He invites him to his house, and at his house, many more publicans and what people call sinners came. We often think of Jesus at the Last Supper, but I want to say that this is almost like the First Supper. Here, Jesus is not trying to uh, really encourage his disciples about his death and that he's going away. Instead, Jesus has been beginning the process of teaching his disciples for the next three years of his ministry. And Jesus is in a house full of publicans and sinners as the Pharisees say. And here is where it is evident that he humbled himself. Because you've got to think about who Jesus really is. Here is one who is literally the God of the universe. In fact, John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word." was God. Verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Here is the living word of God in the middle of people who do not, according to the law, deserve his time or attention. He humbled himself, surrounded by them in a banquet hall, given the highest seat Matthew gave to Jesus. And here he sits with them, the God of the universe, now in a place where his word can reach to their heart. Yesterday we talked about the fact that one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And here he is in the middle of his people, right where he needed to get to. This is why he left his throne in glory. And yet, at this point, Jesus is challenged. Interestingly enough, in verse 11, the Bible says that when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Sometimes as Christians we wonder if God really cares about us. Sometimes we wonder if he really is taking time to look on our situation. The question of the Pharisees is not, was not really their own question. This is the question that Satan tries to ask all of us. Why would Jesus really pay attention to you? Does God really care about you? And notice that the Pharisees first go to Jesus' and the disciples, and when it doesn't work with Jesus' the disciples, they actually go to John's disciples later on in this chapter. They try to build a wedge between Jesus and his disciples just as Jesus is forming his initial connection to his disciples. Let me submit to you, for those of you who are new believers uh, or those of you who will soon come into the fold of truth, once you step into an area where you are close enough to Jesus to spend time with him at the table, to get into a relationship with him, the enemy will send those around you to question Jesus' motives. I tell you that one of the things that the enemy does is early on in your spiritual walk, he tries hard to come in and build a wedge between you and your Lord. And sometimes he'll send your family members to do it, even those who have been in the church. He'll send church members. He may send uh, ex-boyfriends or girlfriends. He he may send someone on your job. But the enemy will always try and send someone to question whether or not Jesus' motives are pure with you. I like this because Jesus doesn't even allow the disciples to answer. He doesn't give them a chance. And yesterday we, we, we talked about when, the, when the, uh, the, um, the young boy who was a, a, the demoniac boy who, who had ap- the epileptic fits and how Jesus steps in and defends his disciples then. Here's another time when Jesus jumps in and defends his disciples. I submit to you that if you follow Jesus, he will be your defense. He jumps in before they can answer, and he says, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. Let me submit to you that people don't like being around sick people. People don't like being around sick people. When this swine flu thing broke out a few weeks back, I was amazed at how cuckoo people can act overnight. (laughs) The whole country of Mexico has lost millions of dollars on a swine flu that was basically a dud so far at least in the states. And you saw people walking around in Orange County with masks on on the street. Now, I'm sure they didn't read the box because the masks are only good for as long as it takes for you to get the mask moist. So if you wear it for more than 20 or 30 minutes, most of the masks actually don't do you any good anymore. And you have people afraid that, I mean, people, somebody cough and you'd see people scattering <laughs> in the clinics and somebody sneezed and people are under the desk looking for their N90 mask to, to try and fit on. I submit to you that people don't like being around the sick. In fact, they like being around well people. They like to think that they are in the company of those who have the best chance of survival. And I submit to you that church is no different. Amen. Church folk don't really like being around sick folk. They don't really want to be around true sinners. In fact, we, we, we try to establish ourselves so that, so in a way that real sick folk won't want to come in. Real people in the world would feel uncomfortable around us. And we have to be careful and remember that Jesus went into the house of a publican and was surrounded by prostitutes and and, and what in their day would have been real drug dealers and and real criminals. He went there because Jesus wasn't concerned with trying to heal people that didn't think they needed healing. Jesus' first task, he humbled himself so that he could reach those who had hit rock bottom in their lives. He wanted to reach those who had nowhere else to turn but to turn to him. The scripture says, they that be whole need not a physician. The danger with thinking that you're whole, the danger with thinking that you are completely healthy, the danger with thinking that you have spiritually arrived is that you cease to think you need a physician. The moment you think you've overcome in all avenues of your life, you will begin to retreat from Jesus and you will begin to exalt your own righteousness. You will begin to think that your own behavior patterns have gotten you to a place where you no longer really need Jesus. Paul says it this way, take heed when you think you stand. Take heed lest you fall. As Christians, we must remember that at all times, even our righteousness, even our what? Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. If Jesus humbled himself to come to earth and to serve mankind, how much more should his, his church be a body of humble people? Amen. Amen. How much more should we be willing to go down to where we need to go down to or into neighborhoods that are not comfortable? I hear churches, there's a church in Los Angeles that's trying to build a church and they found a church in a rough neighborhood, a building that would have met all their needs. And many of the church folks said, no, we don't want to have to drive into that neighborhood on Sabbath morning. Well, how are you going to reach the sick? If you're afraid of the sick folk, how are you going to help them? People, the nurses always amazed that when, you know, when I'm taking care of patients and they say, you know, you, I, that, you know, this swine flu, he's, he's in there coughing, doc. You sure you don't want to put on a mask? No. <laughs> Let me talk to him first. They could be coughing because they got acid reflux disease. You go in there with a mask and you insult the person right out of the gate. We got to be careful that we aren't so busy protecting ourselves from the world that we never actually reached the world. Jesus humbled himself. He did something powerful. In fact, Philippians 2.7 says, but, uh, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He took on him the form of a servant. If Jesus took on the form of a servant, what form should we take? Hebrews 2.16 says, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Jesus could have been born or could have come to earth in the form of an angel. He could have come to earth with the kind of powers he had after his resurrection. But he came to earth as the seed of Abraham. He came to earth flesh and blood. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, for we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But he was in all points tempted as are we, yet he sinned not. He humbled himself. Now let me tell you that he would not be able to be our high priest effectively if he hadn't humbled himself. The fact that when Jesus stands in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary and is going through the book of works and when he wants to take his blood and apply it and wipe out all of our works so that our works are never counted against us in the judgment. If the enemy, the accuser of the brethren wants to say anything, Jesus can say, I have the right to do this. I've been where my child has been. I know what my child went through. And because he never sinned, he is the perfect, spotless lamb of God. Worthy is the lamb they cried in heaven. He's worthy because not only did he take on our form, but but more importantly, in our form, he never sinned. He humbled himself. The scripture says, the day that behold need not a physician, the day that are sick Verse 13 says, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. He says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I like that. You see, because the way that the rabbis worked is if someone was a sinner, the solution was to grab an animal and run to the sanctuary or to the temple at that time. The answer was to go and sacrifice something. Jesus said, no, I'm not, I'm not sacrificing anything. Instead, I'm going to start off having mercy. I'm going to begin with mercy. Jesus changed the entire equation for the Jews. When he came to earth and paid it all for us, there's no need for us to look for animals to sacrifice anymore. In fact, as we talked about yesterday at length, there's no need even now for a physical building to be called a temple for him to dwell in. Because when Jesus died he paid it all and guess what we collectively became his temple Jesus went from having a temple of walls that could be destroyed to a temple that is a living breathing organism made up of his children who have been redeemed from sin Let me tell you you have a privilege being a brick in the temple of God the fact that you get to be in the house of God as a member of his last day remnant church is an honor and a privilege. Never look at it any other way. Amen. It's not a privilege to get someone to come in, but for each of us as individuals, we should look at it as an honor and a privilege. We ought to humbly serve in our capacities in this church. Amen. Understanding that God did not have to offer the mercy that Jesus talks about here. He did not have to offer us mercy first. Jesus could have allowed each one of us to die in our sins. Instead, he humbled himself. And you know why he did? Because of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Ah, I like verse 17 as well. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm not a Christian to escape condemnation. I'm a Christian because Jesus loves me. I'm a Christian because Jesus saw fit to be humbled, to come down to earth, to be born in a manger of low reputation. To be considered as nothing, to work as a carpenter, to suffer and die on a cruel cross. He humbled himself. He says in verse 13, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He humbled himself. Let me submit to you this Sabbath morning our job as Christians is to be like Jesus one of the first steps to being a Christian is to humble yourself I'll tell you that there's no such thing as an arrogant Christian it doesn't exist by default if you're a Christian you should be humble And each of us, when we read the story of Jesus' life, we ought to be inspired with awe. Oh, my Aunt Eva, who has gone on in the Lord now, was such a wonderful Adventist, wonderful Christian lady. And I remember when she would come to visit us from Providence, Rhode Island, in Connecticut, and we would, she would get us up at the crack of dawn to worship. So we used to look out for when she was coming because we'd try and get extra sleep. And and, and she'd get us up so early, and my aunt would go to Matthew chapter 27, and she would begin to read the story of the crucifixion. And she would, as we were kneeling at the bedside, she would weep tears. And every morning when she read the story, she'd cry all over again finally, you know, that afternoon I went to my mother and I said, Mom, why does Antiva cry every day when she reads the same story? (laughs) I was just a kid, I didn't understand. My mother said, because unlike most people, Antiva believes the story. When the story is real to you, it's difficult to read it and not shed a tear. When you understand what Jesus laid down to come to earth and serve as our Messiah, our Savior, and as our King, it's difficult not to shed a tear. It's an awesome and wonderful privilege to be saved by such a humble King. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to serve our loving God who seen fit to step out of the throne room in glory, to cloak his divinity and humanity, and who came to earth so that in 2009, Eric Walsh would have a chance at salvation. Lord God, let us never forget the privilege that has been given us through his humility, that, Father God, we would never get vaunted or puffed up. That we would never grow big egos or or learn to live on pride. Instead, Father God, let your people be humble as Jesus was. Servants as Jesus was. That Father God, one day in glory, when we get a chance to meet our Savior, we can all together take off our crowns and throw them at the feet of our humble King. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.